Uh, we don't budget, but we track our expenses. We spend somewhere between you know eighty and eighty five thousand dollars a year right now, including our mortgage. We don't budget just because we don't have to at this point, and we're still saving a lot of money. You know, maxing out all our tax advantaged accounts, and you know, save, uh, saving above that as well. So what we do is we just track it, and we together we just discuss what we spend, and then if you know things are getting a little kind of out of whack, we'll we'll talk about that together. Do we want to bring that down? Um, is it bringing us joy and value? And if so, we'll keep spending on it. Um, but we're at the point right now where just in our normal kind of course of living, we don't really need to watch our uh, spending too much at this point. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Okay, welcome back. Another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is 199. Jace, what's going on? We're here actually together in person this week. What's going on? Super excited. We're in person again. We're going to be uh, doing a few things with the podcast this week in person. Uh, you're going to have some bonus content for for all y'all out there in the near future. So super excited about that. And we've got a lot of things obviously in the pipeline here uh, coming up. But yeah, man, summer's winding down. Kids are going back to school, and uh, you know we're we're taking part of that as well. Our kids are going to a different school than uh, they were in the past, and you know I've got another baby coming here pretty so pretty soon. So that's what's going on, man. What about you? Awesome. Well, I can't say my kids are changing schools yet because I don't have any. But so we just interviewed actually today as we speak Morgan Housel, who wrote the Psychology of Money. You've read that book, right? I have not yet, but I think you have. Yes, that's correct. And what do you think? Yeah, it's a great book. It's it's a definitely a, a very well-known personal finance book, very different from a lot of other books as he takes a lot of these stories and relates them to, you know, personal finance and topics and stuff that you know, I think typically in a lot of personal finance finance books, we get into some of the details, spreadsheet, how to invest this, that, and the other thing. And he, he really takes a different approach with it uh, as it relates to the psychology and why we do the things that we do. So it's a great book for sure. Yeah. So when we were interviewing him, we talked about compounding and I think we asked, okay, you know, what's the difference? What do people think about money? What makes some people win with money? Some people don't, et cetera, et cetera. And he talked about compounding and how time can be your friend. And so I just thought of this quote, we'll launch his episode the next month or something here. But I thought this quote that he had on compounding was pretty good. He said, if something compounds, if a little growth serves as the fuel for future growth, a small starting base can lead to results so extraordinary they seem to defy logic. It can be so logic-defying that you underestimate what's possible, where growth comes from, and what it can lead to. And then in the book, he goes down and talks about $81 billion of Warren Buffett's $84 billion came after his 65th birthday um, and how somebody said about him, his skills in, his skill is investing, but his secret is time. Uh, if you want to do better as an investor, the single most powerful thing you can do is to increase your time horizon. I don't know how we always do that besides starting early, but he talks about hitting base hits, getting good returns. It's about earning pretty good returns that you can stick with and which can be repeated for the longest period of time. That's when compounding runs wild. So I just thought that was an interesting uh, quote, interesting kind of take on him as we, as we have an interview coming up with him soon. Yeah, totally. I mean, we, we, we discussed compounding and, you know, we've got the famous quote that, uh, you know, from, from Albert Einstein that compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And he under, he who understands it 
earns it and he who doesn't pays it. And it's it's interesting as we were talking to Morgan and just, you know, discussing compounding interest and, you know, that time horizon. Obviously, we just, you know, you mentioned the Warren Buffett earned, you know, majority of his wealth, you know, in the last 20 or 30 years. But it's, you know, after he was investing for 40 years or whatever, whatever it was, 40, 45 years. And, and it really does start to take shape. And I think especially for this generation, baby boomer generation, who's kind of moving out of the workforce here over the next few several years, they have definitely been able to probably really see a, a lot of those fruits. And it's why I think you see a lot of these articles that, you know, we're looking at the, the staring in the mirror of, you know, what's going to be potentially the largest wealth transfer in history because a lot of these people, one, they've lived longer lives and a lot of cases, they were more willing to take these investments, you know, whether it be in the market or real estate or whatever, and they've been able to they've been able to compound their their money, and it's grown to significant heights. Right. So pretty amazing. Once you, I mean, even when you plug in your numbers, right? If you have a, a certain amount of retirement funds and you plug in six, seven, eight, ten, twelve percent, whatever you think your return's going to be, and put in a certain amount of years, I mean, if you get started early enough, pretty soon you can just let it sit and let it ride for twenty, thirty years. If you're in your late 20s or 30s and, and you get a pretty good sizable chunk in your retirement accounts. So anyway, just thought that was interesting because we have that interview with Morgan Housel coming up. Just a quick recap of last week's episode. We had John Networth of 4.2. Great interview with him. We're thankful to him for coming on, sharing his time. He's 55, married with adult children now. So we talk about that dynamic, who pays for what, when they do a family vacation, just some interesting stuff that we haven't necessarily talked about in the in the past. He has a paid for house worth over a million a rental worth about the same or a couple hundred thousand dollars less and then a couple million in the stock market. So fun interview with John. This week we have Kevin. He's a 32-year-old CPA. Net worth is just over a million dollars. We take a deep dive into his asset allocation just like we do on every interview. Talk about his career trajectory, his savings rate, investment strategies. Obviously, he's a young millionaire at the age of 32. So fun interview with him. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. And without any further delay, let's get right into this interview with Kevin. Kevin, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Sure. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm 32 years old. I'm a CPA located in the Midwest. I've done accounting for my whole career, graduated from college back in 2009, um, which was a kind of a tough time to to graduate, but I was an accounting major. And luckily, um, myself and most of my friends in the accounting program had jobs when we graduated. And uh, I stayed in that field ever since, jumped around a few employers during that time. And uh, I'm, I'm still in the field now, uh, working remotely uh, from the Midwest. Awesome. And what's your net worth today? Uh, we just crossed 1 million. Awesome. Newly minted millionaire. I love it. And how is the million broken up? Sure. So um, we keep it pretty simple. So we like to keep about a year's of expenses in cash. So we have about 80 grand in a high yield savings account and some short term uh, debt instruments, uh, 415,000 in our 401ks, which we just keep in some the cheapest S&P 500 funds in our 401ks, have about 300 grand in after tax brokerage accounts, which um, have mostly developed international index funds in there because we like to get the the tax credit for our income taxes. Uh, Roth IRAs are about 115, which is a split between some small cap value and some emerging markets. HSA, 30 grand. Um, we just started with some private company investments, 20 grand, and then home equity of uh, about 80 grand. 
Wow, so you got a pretty pretty diversified uh, portfolio going there. Let's let's jump into some of the details in this and and maybe give our listeners because you're such a young millionaire. Did this look like this in terms of the breakout five years ago, or even seven or ten years ago when you first got started? No. So, I mean, I've always been pretty decent with money. I always made sure that I had an emergency fund. And that kind of goes back to as a kid. Um, I just remember growing up there, you know, there was a couple times and I don't want to, um, kind of, you know, exaggerate or anything. There's only like one or two times growing up where money was a little tight. And I just always remembered that I want to have something squirreled away just in case. So ever since I got my first W2 job when I was 15 years old, I just always made sure I had at least, you know, a thousand bucks in a savings account just in case something happened. So I was always decent with saving, but not, but nothing crazy. So when I graduated, I contributed probably, you know, five to 10% in my 401k while trying to pay off some student loans. I had about 30 grand in student loans after undergrad. And then I tacked on another 10 grand uh, shortly thereafter for a master. So I, uh, I hated having that kind of hanging over my shoulder. So I basically was just saving a little bit into my 401k and then using the rest of my money to pay off the student loans. So my assets at that time, you know, weren't very substantial. It was just probably in a target date fund in my 401k for the most part and some cash uh, just for an emergency fund. Okay. So did you start investing though, right? When you got your first job, even though you had some of the student debt? Yeah, I made sure. Um, I, th- I think it was, you know, some coworkers and I kind of knew about 401ks just from um, being an accounting major, taking five years new to contribute to your 401k and at least get that match. And I think I was doing probably right off the off the bat, I was probably doing 5% and getting like a 3% match or something like that. And then um, I actually bought a car um, when I was 21. I graduated when I was 21 and I, I bought a car that was about $20,000. And I took out a note for that. So I had that and my student loans. So I wasn't saving too much besides paying those, uh, those two things off. Wow. Okay. So started, Matt, I mean, was you, were you maxing it out at the time or when, at what point did you start maybe maxing, maxing things out? So where my situation really changed was I took a, um, a a new job, which had me move to a bigger city. And so my um, income, I think I got like a 10% raise from probably 70,000. And this was, I was um, about 26 years old. So I got a raise from probably 70,000 to close to 80,000 to, to move to the big city. And that alone didn't really get me going. But shortly thereafter, I was able to, you know, I was in a new city. So I, I worked, I was working pretty hard in the new role. I was pretty excited about it. So pretty quickly within the next year or two, I was able to cross the $100,000 per year uh, for my income. And that's when I started really starting to save. Um, at that point, I paid off um, my student loans or at least got them really low to where they were maybe five grand at a you know 3% rate where I started paying probably the minimum on that, if I remember correctly. And then um, that's at that time when I moved that I kind of discovered FIRE. So financial independence, retire early. Uh, I discovered that right around the time when I moved to the big city because I had the student loans, I had the car, and some people were telling me, oh, you're moving to the big city. It's expensive. You got to be careful. Rack up credit card debt, go broke. And I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. I'm getting a raise to move to the city. I'm going to sell my car. I'm going to live with roommates. So I said, you know, I want to make the best of this situation. Uh, My income was increasing. Uh, I, you know, got rid of my car note. Um, so I, I wanted, I did a lot of research just to kind of understand what I could do at that time to really take advantage of this new job and new income. Um, while at the same time, you know, I, I was starting to get rid of my debt. 
Well, that's pretty remarkable. So you have this debt, you start out in a normal entry-level job in accounting, take a better job, if you want to call it that, got a little bit of a raise, still had the student debt, and you had car loan as well at the time, or did you pay for that in cash? No, my that car at the time, I had a note on it, and I sold it when I moved to that big city because I didn't really need the car anymore. So um, I got rid of it at that time, but I still had student loans. They were, they were lower at that point. Um, and then I, I made large payments on the higher interest ones. And I think within a year or two of moving to that bigger city, I had them down to probably 10 grand or less of just, you know, two or 3% loans. And at that time I was doing research and they were saying, oh, you should, you know, contribute to retirement and save uh, and invest rather than pay off those, those loans. So I let those, um, the, the smaller loans the lower interest kind of hang out there for a little bit. That was kind of be my next question. So you mentioned they were saying, who's they and why did you decide personally to make that decision to, to invest instead of maybe, you know, attack those student loans? Yeah. So, and it kind of was weird how it all happened at the same time. So I, I moved there, you know, started, I settled in and I just started doing research and I don't remember exactly what I typed into the, the Google search bar, but I came across some of the personal finance blogs and I stumbled upon folks like, uh, Mr. Money Mustache, uh, Living a Fi, Mad Scientist, uh, Jim Collins, among others. And from uh, their blog post, they had kind of talked about some of the other um, kind of, I guess, more professionals within investing and personal finance, like Rick Ferry and Bill Bernstein and Larry Swedrow. And I, from the blogs, I kind of moved to the, to the white papers and the books on asset allocation and investing. So um, I kind of found my, found my spot with, with the kind of the boglehead type, you know, keep control what you can, keep your costs low, your taxes low, uh, monitor your uh, expense, you know, expense ratios on your investments and just try to track the indexes because over the long term, you're just not going to be able to, to beat the market. And I had actually opened up a brokerage account in college with and my roommate did at the same time so we kind of looked at it as like fantasy sports kind of we both were trading in our dorm room with the two or three grand that we had saved from from summer jobs and we just never did really well you know every once in a while you would pick a stock that would do well but i just knew personally that i wasn't very good at picking stocks so this kind of all the the data and the research on just keeping your expenses low, picking an index and sticking with it, that really um, made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, good for you. First of all, I mean, congrats on your success, especially at at such a young age. Let me just keep going here with with what Jace was asking. So you pay off this debt. Let me back up though. What was your, and we usually talk about this at the end, but what was your salary coming out of school? How much did you make at your first job? Yeah, my first job was $50,000 a year in accounting. Okay, 50,000 and you graduated when you were how old? 21 in 2009. 21. And then you became millionaire at, at what age? Uh 32. Okay, so in in and so maybe your net worth, how long did you say it took you to pay off the all the loans? Probably by the time I was 27 or 28, but it was just because I had left some uh, had, linger kinda, out there yeah. for a little while. So you did this and your wife, right? I think it's important to note that she works outside the home as well. So your dual income here, right? You guys did this in 10 years, right? You became millionaires. Yep. And um, I think a lot of it has... A lot of it has happened in the past three or four years. I've really increased my income in the past three or four years from what it was. And my wife started her career a little later. So, you know, she's still coming kind of, you know, into her salary now. So it's kind of been, you know, I think a lot of the the growth has happened in the last probably three, 
three years, most likely. Wow. Wow. Good for you. So how does somebody who's coming out of school, right, at the age of 21, how in the world do they know what to do? How did you know to do all this? Did your parents teach you this? You, I mean, you talked about bottleheads and starting to read and Mr. Money Mustache and all that, but is there a specific moment or conversation or something that kicked it off or was this always the plan? So, I, you know, I don't want to paint the picture that I was, you know, doing anything special when I had first graduated college. Like, I, I mean, I guess I knew that student loans were bad. And I think I learned that just in school, uh, you know, being in an accounting and finance program, uh, I, we, you know, covered investments and things like that. And, you know, debt at a high interest rate is bad and things like that, that I learned in school. And, um, I do remember though, you know, my, uh, my parents, teach me like I, when I was 18, I wanted to get a credit card. And my mom told me that you never want to you know, carry a balance because the interest rate is just ridiculous. And you're going to pay so much in interest more than you're going to pay for whatever item you got. But besides that, I don't know. I just was always interested in money. Um, saving, like I had, you know, mentioned before, uh, was important to me just from those, you know, couple of times where I saw that my family would have done a little better if they had, you know, put a little more money into a rainy day fund. So that I, you know, I'm sure that stuck with me to always have a little bit on the side. Um, but, but the kind of the debt aversion or just wanting to pay off the student loans that probably just came from, 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 uh, college and my accounting and finance, uh, program. Yeah. And how long have you been married? Uh, we got married back in 2018, so two years. Oh, wow. Okay. Fairly new, right? Congrats. Yep. Thanks. <laughs> and and when you got married, did your wife have student loans or anything you had to pay off or, or a nice chunk of savings? No. Um, my wife uh, didn't have any student loans. Uh, thankfully, that uh, was covered you know, through scholarships and her parents were able to, to chip in as well. Um, she was kind of you know, only a couple of years into her career. So she brought over a little bit of assets um, in, into the picture. And I think when we got married in 2018, we're probably combined. Uh, total net worth was probably like five fifty six hundred um, about two years ago. But um, over the past two years, you know, we've been able to sock away, uh, you know, a, a decent amount just through yeah. increases in our income. Yeah, yeah, good for you. Uh, so let's let's talk about jumping around on on the jobs, right? I think you've jumped around or moved around cities and roles. How has that played a role in increasing the net worth? I mean, obviously, in the last two years, it's been monumental, right? Five hundred grand, as you just said. How is, is that? Was that the biggest driver? Was moving from job to job? Yeah, for sure. I would think that that was that's played the biggest role. So just kind of going back to my first job out of college, I was making about 50 grand a year and it was, you know, 2009. So 2010 rolls around and, you know, we have our annual reviews and we get our raises and um, I got really great reviews um, for my first year there. And I was super excited and, you know, go to sit down and they were they were saying, OK, here's your 3% raise. We're still kind of in a recession. And here's your puny, like, I don't even know what it was, a thousand dollar bonus. And I said, huh, <laughs> like, I, you know, I busted my tail and, and it's in, in accounting, as you guys know, I was working, you know, a lot of hours. And I said, well, you know, I, I got, you know, these great reviews, you know, what were other people's bonuses? And they're like, oh, well, you were, you know, you were $500 more than, than the average of bonus. I'm like, well, I busted my for, you know, $500. Right. And so pretty, pretty quickly, I was like, well, 
you know, this, this place isn't going to work out for me. You know, if, if you're not rewarding the folks that are, 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 you know, working more or, you know, kind of in a more of a meritocratic enterprise, uh, I wanted to go find that. So I started talking to friends and, uh, one of my buddies was like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm working at this firm and they seem to pay a little bit better. And if you work hard, you can kind of move up and you'll, you'll get paid more. And if you want to, you know, move to another city, you can do that too. So I went over there and I worked there and I felt that my value was being recognized a little more. And after two years doing that, I got the opportunity uh, to move to another city to do a, a different job. And that's once I moved into that role um, is kind of when the income started taking off because it was in a, in a niche field. And um, that's where I felt like my value was re- really seen. And then as, as long as you're you know, kind of putting in the time and, and, and contributing to the team and, you know, basically earning money for the firm, they actually rewarded you a lot better than what I was uh, getting prior to that. And then since then, I've also, I moved on twice for different roles and to increase my income and move um, into um, a, a different role that suited my lifestyle a little better. So have the, have the jobs always come with the new jobs or the jobs that you pivot to? Have they always come with a salary increase? Or were some of them lateral moves to get different experience? So position-wise, some of them were lateral, but for the most part, I'd always make sure that the my income was increasing. So, you know, the past two moves that I've done in, uh, in terms of roles were probably, you know, lateral moves, but I was able to articulate my value in those moves better each time. So I was able to increase my income. And I think it also, obviously, we're in a uh, you know, in a bull market here, which has an effect on on my job because our client work goes up when when uh, li- you know liquidity is in the market and firms are able to grow, um, and so it gives it gives us more work, which kind of has been a tailwind at, for my career, which I've definitely realized as well as the tailwind in in the in the markets has has helped my career as well. Kevin, let me ask: Is there anything you would have done differently as you've navigated your career up to this point? Um, you know, hindsight's 2020. So I don't know if there's anything particularly, you know, specific that I would have done differently. Maybe I would have left a, a role a little earlier. Um, cause, you know, I think some, when you start, uh, if you're in a, in a job and you're kind of getting, you know, that feeling where I think the grass is going to be greener, but then you start t- talking to people and you're like, oh, maybe it's not greener. Well, sometimes it is. So I think sometimes you just got to make the move, make the jump. It's scary, especially in your mid twenties to late twenties. You know, you, you have maybe five to six years under your belt. You know, you're, you're still maybe a little bit of that imposter syndrome still. So, but I, I, I think maybe I would have made, made a couple of the jumps a little bit earlier, but I've, you know, I, I never went and I've never been passionate about something else to the effect where I wanted to like change my career or anything like that. So I've kind of stuck with the accounting because I've been good at it. And, um, every year it's, it's paid me more than the prior year. So it's just worked for me. And then I've been also to trans been able to transition into roles that suit my lifestyle more, less hours, no weekend work, um, things like that. So I've used my kind of financial position to be able to negotiate in these new roles to not have to work crazy hours or do uh, extensive travel and things like that. Yeah, totally. So let me ask Kevin, as you navigated this career path and, and received the raises and, and provided more value to the firms and the companies that you've worked for, has your lifestyle changed at all? And if so, by how much on a you know year over year basis? 
Yeah, I mean, w- once I discovered fire and I was living in that big city, I was I was pretty frugal at that time, but I was also um, making a lot less money. My wife and I actually purchased a house last year, and while you know the the price of it was well below two times our our gross income because we um, live in the, we live in the Midwest now, so the cost of living is lower. But I've been able to keep my income from those uh, cities with a higher cost of living. So we were able to buy a home that, compared to our income, wasn't a lot of money. But because we're in the Midwest, it's actually um, you know fairly nice, which was nice to do because I, you know, talking to friends that are in the Northeast or on the West coast, um, how much they've spent on their houses and, and how old they are. It's just, it, you know, it's, it's crazy. And it's, you know, just tough to do unless you're in a kind of a, you know, a, a law firm role or an investment banking or, you know, a, a higher paying role to get, be able to buy a house that you really are happy to own. Um, so, you know, I, I would, I'd be lying if I said we haven't increased, you know, our lifestyle in the past couple of years with, with our income. Uh, we don't budget, but we track our expenses. We spend somewhere between, you know, 80 and $85,000 a year right now, including our mortgage. We don't budget just because we don't have to at this point. And we're still saving a lot of money, you know, maxing out all our tax advantaged accounts and, you know, save, uh, saving above that as well. So what we do is we just track it and we, together we just discuss what we spend and then if you know things are getting a little kind of out of whack we'll we'll talk about that together do we want to bring that down um is it bringing us joy and value and if so we'll keep spending on it um but we're at the point right now where just in our normal kind of course of living we don't really need to watch our uh spending too much at this point so i want to ask since you've married recently and you were pretty well on your journey did you mention to your now wife, what your net worth was about when you got married? And, and if you did, about what what time did you kind of do that in, in your journey? So <laughs> I had discovered kind of uh, financial independence right around the same time that I met my wife. And so right away, we were kind of talking about it. I was like, hey, kind of figured out this thing. Um, it sounds, you know, like something I want to work towards. And so I kind of wanted to know about her situation as well, because if I was going to go down this path and we had just met, kind of want to make sure that our ideas were aligned with regard to money. Because if I found out that, you know, she, this was not something that she could ever see herself doing was, you know, saving to, to try to reach financial and financial independence. Then, you know, I, I wanted to know that right away just because I was, um, as soon as I learned about it, I was, I was fairly passionate about it as well. So no, from basically day one, we were both very open with each other's finances and we've continued to, to do that to this day. And well, now we have combined finances, but, um, you know, we're still very open about spending. We'll talk if we want to make a big purchase, we talk through that together. And so just try to be on the same page with that. What was her reaction when you first brought that up? Um, <laughs> it's like, it's a while, you know, six years ago now. Um, you know, I think when you're just starting to date someone, you're kind of in that, you know, phase where, um, whatever they say sounds good, right? If you, if you're really into each other. So, uh, <laughs> I'm sure she just, you know, I'm sure she just was nodding her head and saying, Hey, you know, that sounds like a good idea. And actually she, uh, as well has always hasn't been a big spender. Um, so this kind of gave her, kind of a, a reason to save rather than just kind of being frugal to be frugal. So I think it kind of gave her a reason because, um, you know, she's seen as well, you know, when you have, you know, friends and family members who can fall on hard times, lose a job, things like that. Um, I, I think it's pretty easy to see the value in having a, a nest egg put to the side so that you just don't really have to worry about those uh, situations. Totally. 
So, Kevin, where do you go from here? Are you trying to, to reach a certain net net worth or passive income goal or retire early? What is what does the journey look like? You know, you're 32 now. You got a long long road ahead of you. What does it look like? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, it's something that I'm really thinking about now. I do financial independence is the goal. The retire early part, you know, we'll see when that when that time arises. But what I am going to try and do is take a sabbatical next year in 2021. I'm going to try to, you know, depending on how this pandemic is is kind of looking at that time. Um, you know, I don't want to take a bunch of time off and just sit at home. So we'll, you know, we'll see how that's shaping up, but, um, want to try to take off three months and just see how I like it. You know, am I, am I going crazy? Do I find a, um, hobby that I'm really passionate about? Do I just spend more time with my hobbies? Um, it'll give me a, you know, a good chance to travel as well. If we can do that at that time, um, and just see how I feel about it. Um, you know, I've been working straight through since I graduated college, you know, with, you know, vacations here and there, but I haven't taken off any extended period of time. And some other folks in my company have taken some sabbaticals. So I'm pretty sure that um, my work will be accepting of that. And I'll, you know, hopefully get a little travel and see some family and just kind of see how it feels to kind of take the foot off the gas for a little bit. How long are you thinking about doing the sabbatical for? I'm thinking three months um, in 2021. Um, I think that's you know I, I, just in terms of sabbaticals from what I read, that's that's pretty typical. And I think it's a it's a good good spot where you know you're not getting too far removed from work, and at the same time that work will be agreeable to uh, to, to yeah. leaving work for that p- period of time. Um, and then also it's just going to be kind of based on because we uh, we do like to travel. So if we're if international travel hasn't really opened up at that point, you know, maybe it gets delayed to 2022 or something like that. But, um, I mean, I'm hopeful that maybe in the second half of 2021, it's something I can, uh, I can do. And my, my wife has the ability to work remotely as well. So we'll see, you know, how she plans to kind of handle that if we decide to do some traveling and things like that. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask is if, if she's doing one as well, so you can time it and do stuff together. So yeah, I don't, it seems like you're working on it. Yeah, I don't think she'll do the full three months, but maybe she'll take, you know, a little extended time to do a, a nice trip or something like that. Yeah. So to, to Jace's point, how do you go about figuring out what you're going to do and what the goal is? I mean, he mentioned, right, you're 32. You got your whole life ahead of you here. You're a millionaire. You could technically retire now, right, and live off the 4% withdrawal rule if you wanted to keep a lower cost of living, right? 40, 40 grand-ish. I mean, how do you even start? Is it, how do you know what you're going to do? How do you go about? What's your thinking behind that? Yeah, I think, and that's a very good question. I don't have like this burning passion to go do something else. Um, you know, I'm kind of envious of folks who are like, oh, I want to be a park ranger, so they leave their law firm and go be a park ranger, and they're as happy <laughs> as they can be. But you know, I just don't have. I don't have that right now. So, you know, I have my hobbies, I like riding my bike, working out, traveling, things like that. Um, but it's not something that I can see myself doing, you know, 24-7 for the rest of my life. Right. So, you know, my career is very intellectually stimulating. Um, it can be a pain at times. I get a little burnt out doing it at times. And I think that's one of the main reasons I want to try the sabbatical is just kind of take the foot off the gas for a little bit and just, you know, kind of think about what I want next. Because you're right, we're we're in coast FI territory. We don't really need to save any more money for traditional retirement, but that just opens up some doors to do some interesting things, whether I want to try something a little more entrepreneurial, where I want to take off some time to, you know, go travel. But for the foreseeable future, I'm going to, I'm going to keep my job and just kind of try to figure it out as I go. Um, because, you know, I don't want to just kind of be, you know, rudderless trying to figure it out. But, 
Um, you know, I do want to get into some other hobbies that will take up some more time, like woodworking and carpentry and things like that. But I could, I've started doing those on the side, but it might be nice to just spend a little more time learning about those, maybe taking some classes, things like that. Yeah. So just jumping back here to your allocation, you have about 800,000, 830 or so of your million or just over a million in the market. How come nothing in real estate? (laughs) So I have a a, a lot of friends and acquaintances that have uh, residential real estate. And it's just not my cup of tea, I've learned. Um, All the horror stories that I've heard just is not something I want to deal with. I like that when I get paid, you know, I log on to Vanguard, I deposit some extra money, and I don't even have to think about it. With regard to the residential real estate, like I get it. You know, you're using leverage with an asset that gives you a a decent amount of yield, mostly through the leverage. You can um, hire out the management of it, but then your yields are going to start coming down a little bit. Um, It works well for a lot of people, but then I've also, you know, talked to a lot of people who have bought, you know, two or three or four duplexes, single family homes. And then it's just been become such a headache that they end up selling them all and then just right, end yeah. up putting the money back into the market. Now I understand <laughs> for, for some folks it, it works great and they find a great location or they live in an area where the yields are really good and they can kind of keep an eye on it. Um, and, but it's, I, I've done a ton of research on it and I've just, I just know myself too well to know that it would just drive me nuts. So yeah, I'm just more comfortable in the set it and forget it. And the equities, mostly, you know, I'm, I'm basically 100% equities with the exception of our, you know, pretty decent emergency fund. I don't know if it's just my temperament or, you know, being in the accounting and, and finance field from, you know, through college and my whole career, but, but the volatility of it just doesn't really bother me. You know, we had the big kind of drawdown in the spring of this year. And I mean, I was more kind of just worried about people's employment and my employment rather than kind of how my, you know, equities were performing. Um, we have the cash on the side, so I wasn't too concerned about like my job or anything like that. But, you know, the equities just, it, it, they don't really, they don't bother me or keep me up at night. So let's jump. Yeah, good answer. Let's jump to your private investments. You said you have, what is it, 20 grand investments in private companies? Yeah. So just started that this year. Um, it's probably, you know, being bored at home because of, you know, COVID, but I opened an AngelList account and haven't been investing through AngelList and some syndicates, uh, starting this year. Um, it's, you know, I'm going to keep it probably less than 3% of our investable assets. So we're at like 2% right now, but it's just something fun to do. I, I, I come from, you know, like I said, um, accounting and finance background. So I enjoy reading the investment memos and watching the, uh, founder pitches and things like that. And it's just, an interesting thing to do that it's probably not going to have any significant impact on my net worth. Um, <laughs> you never know, at the man. Same t- yeah, exactly. But at the same time, it's it's a, it's a fun little hobby. So how many different, it's on AngelList, you said, right? How many different companies yeah. have you invested in? I'm only doing like one to 2,000 each. So it's probably like 15 at this point. So what's the total raise? I'm not too familiar with it. If you're investing a thousand, it doesn't, what's the, is there a minimum? And then what's the total raise a company looks for? Yeah. So, I mean, um, Angelus does anyone from kind of pre-seed who's uh, raising at a $4 million valuation, they're raising, you know, half million dollars at a $4 million valuation all the way up to C rounds where the company's raising 40 million at a, you know, 300 million valuation and things like that. Um, I 
I try to stick to the pre-seed seed rounds very early. So most of the time, you know, these companies are going to go belly up. But at the same time, the one or two that potentially will see returns will hopefully go up, you know, enough to offset the losses of the other 99% that kind of failed. <laughs> yeah, right. So when you invest, so like on your last one, if you invest just a couple thousand bucks, what do they give? They give you some certain percentage of equity? Yeah, so you just it's so it's a it's a syndicate. There's there's a individual or or investment firm that goes and sources the deal and they get an allocation to the raise. So say a company's raising a million bucks, the syndicate might get an allocation of two fifty of that million. So they go to their syndicate members and raise the two fifty. And they get a twenty percent carry for doing that. So after so after the investment, um, you know, IPOs or gets sold, well, this is in a success scenario. If they, you know, um, get acquired or have an IPO, every, all the um, LPs, the limited partners who invest in the syndicate, get their capital back. The syndicate lead gets their 20% carry off the top, and then the rest gets distributed to the, to the LPs um, as their return. So the syndicate leads can, you know, get their, their 20% carry for kind of doing the legwork, writing up the investment memo, interviewing the founders, and they put, you know, put together a nice little kind of deck to kind of explain the, the company. Um, and so that they get compensated that way. And then the, the lazy people like, like me who just get to kind of cut a check or, you know, a transfer and uh, get a piece of the round. Yeah. And then how did they do taxes at the end of the year? You get a K1 or something? Yeah, so that's kind of like AngelList's sell to these syndicate leads as they do all the back end. Um, so at the end of the year, they just give you a consolidated K-1. Consolidated for all of your investments? I believe so. This is my first year, but I, I did look it up at the beginning, and I believe it's a, it's a yeah, 1K-1 for the... I don't know how they do it, but You're I think right. that's, that's how it works. Yeah. And how's your for somebody who's listening that's interested, in, how's your experience been with AngelList? Pretty good? Yeah, the platform is awesome. It's super intuitive. It's very easy. Um, you know, you have to answer there a few questions at the beginning when you apply to, and they want to make sure you're an accredited investor. Um, I think I forget what, you know, the, the, the an act was just passed in the, in the past couple of years, which has kind of opened up the accredited investor definition. So I think more people can start you know, investing in, in private investments like this, where before you had to have, you know, a net worth over a million or income over 300,000. I think now if you have, you know, I, I, and I'm going to be butchering this, but if you have your CPA or you, a series seven or things like that, you can um, start investing in these private investments as well. And I think AngelList has kind of done a lot of that lobbying because they want to kind of democratize private investments um, is kind of their spiel. Gotcha, gotcha. So along this whole financial journey, Kevin, did you worry about money at all? Or did this all happen so fast for you and you could see the light that it, it wasn't much of a concern? I think I got a little too focused on it probably um, in my mid-20s when I first kind of discovered this financial independence thing. I was working long hours, stressed out, and, and you know, you're in your mid-20s, stressed out, you're making good money, but you're like, what's what's the end? What's the end goal, right? I'm, am I just going to work myself to death until I'm 60? And I, and I knew I wanted to kind of eventually get out of it. So I figured as long as I had some cash on the side, I wouldn't have to pick my next job based on salary alone. I could base it off what I was doing, location who I'm going to be working with, whether it was a remote role, would I have to commute to an office, would I have to travel, things like that. And I would have 
uh, more say in the next thing that I was going to do. And that was what drove me the most to kind of get this nest egg rolling. And then, you know, once it started rolling, I think I thought about it less because it was just set on autopilot. And like we discussed, my investments are pretty vanilla. Um, it's pretty simple to, to take care of, you know, set your 401k, um, max out your, your backdoor Roth IRAs, you know, contribute to your HSA and you don't really have to do too much besides rebalance every year if you want to. Um, so I've been able to kind of transition away from spending so much time with it. You know, I had to do a lot of research and reading in the front end. And that was my hobby at the time for probably two, three years where I was just reading and reading and reading as much as I could about it because it interested me so much. And it just got me to a place where I felt comfortable um, taking my kind of foot off the gas, I guess you would say, and just setting everything kind of on autopilot so that I didn't have to worry about it too much. Kevin, when you took your foot off the gas, did you stop investing as much or maxing things out or? So when I say take my foot off the gas, I guess I, I mean, I didn't, you know, I'm not tracking my expenses as much and kind of beating myself up for spending more than I did last year. Um, it, you know, I still every month I'm going on and saying, you know, how much extra excess cash I have and investing it and making sure I'm investing it. But, you know, we, we built up a pretty nice emergency fund. So I don't like, saving too much cash just because yields are so low right now. So I do like to get my money into the market as, as fast as I can, but I, I'm not, I'm reading different books besides, uh, Rick Ferry's asset allocation and Bill Bernstein books. Um, you know, I, it's not my, my full hobby anymore. You know, I still enjoy reading articles on personal finance and safe withdrawal rates and things like that. But, uh, I, I just don't devote as much time to it anymore. And I'm able to concentrate on other hobbies and interests that I have. Is there a point where you think you will take the foot off the gas maybe and, and not invest quite as much in the retirement accounts? I mean, um, yeah, that's, I think as long as, you know, I get a tax advantage from contributing to retirement accounts, I'm going to keep doing that. Now, there could be a situation in the future where I don't want to, um, you know, continue on with my career and I want to do something else and it just doesn't earn as much. So we'll, you know, use whatever funds that I'm earning at that time to kind of support our, support our living. And I think I'd be comfortable with that just because we've kind of set up our retirement now that I know when six, when I'm 60, I don't, I don't need to save any more from now until I'm 60 just to have a traditional retirement. So that takes a little bit of the stress away from, from the earning side of the equation where I can now kind of more concentrate on, on, on the lifestyle side. Do you regret maybe working as much as you did in your 20s? No, I don't think I don't because at the time I didn't really have you know, anything else that was, um, how do I want to say like constructive, right? Um, my hobbies now are more working out, going for bike rides, traveling, things like that. But at the time I probably would have just been doing stupid stuff with my friends. So I, you know, I don't look back at it and say I should have probably worked less in my twenties. I was in a big city. Um, you know, I was single for a portion of that time. So it's just, you know, I, I enjoyed getting the experience networking in my field, um, getting better because I would see the kind of the, fruits of that effort um, when I was able to, you know, get a raise or promotion or change jobs. And I was would be able to show value in that respect and kind of get into a, a new role that I was more excited about. Interesting. So, Kevin, we've, we've touched on this a little bit before, but I, I kind of want to press just for somebody who's so young. You've done this so quickly. How do you start evaluating financial opportunities? And, you know, you mentioned that you started investing in these in, in AngelList. 
do I keep investing in the traditional? I know you talked about the tax advantages or go to a Roth. How do you start evaluating all these financial opportunities now that, that you've got to the point where you're a millionaire? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think for the most part, I know myself enough where I want to keep 90 plus percent of our assets tracking index funds, you know, a diversified, we're 60, 40 US international. So I, you know, I'm comfortable with that allocation, you know, maybe down the road. And it also depends on yields and kind of what, what we're doing. But when, you know, kind of when you're, you're safe, when you're earning enough and your savings rate is high, you're able to be a little more aggressive with the, with the asset allocation, or at least we, you know, we're able to do that. So, you know, going forward, I think I'll still allocate 90 plus percent of whatever we're saved to that asset allocation just because I know that that's what we're most comfortable with. Now, maybe we'll up that, you know, 2% of kind of more risky um, allocation. Maybe that'll get up as the net worth grows to 3% to 5% to 7% just because as the net worth grows, it, the impact of those investments won't have as much of an impact on our lifestyle in the future or when we, you know, do decide to decide to retire. Um, just because, you know, I think we'll, we'll definitely be well ahead of the curve then. And I, I hope to have the problem of, you know, saving too much and rather than saving not enough. And, um, so I, that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. What do you think your return will be? for the market investments going forward? So whenever I kind of project out our net worth in the future, I'm pretty conservative. I'm using about a 6% nominal return for our portfolio, so probably 4% real. I'm hoping that that's too conservative. I know a lot of folks use a lot higher return, but I I always, you know, I like to sandbag kind of a little bit with, with our goals just because <laughs> I'd rather be pleasantly surprised than kind of beating myself up because it didn't work out uh, the, the way that it could have worked out. Sure, sure. So let me just wrap up here, Kevin, with a couple rapid fire questions and then we'll finish it up here. So you became a millionaire at age 32, right? You said? Yep. And household annual spending about 80000 I believe? Yeah, I think it'll probably be like 80, 85. Yep. Okay. And then what's been your range of annual household income through your working life as much as you're comfortable sharing? Sure. I think when I met my wife, um, it was probably combined around 90. And then now it's just over 300, depending on the year. Wow. Good for you guys. Any uh, books or products, websites, anything you recommend? I know you hit on a couple of these earlier, but anything specific? Yeah, I used to be really big into the uh, financial independence blogs like Mr. Money Mustache, Living a Fi, Mad Scientist, Jim Collins. I don't, you know, those guys aren't as active as they once were. And it's, you know, I've kind of read everything I need to read on the subject. So for someone starting off, out, though, I think those are great places to start. Book, book wise, I just read Morgan Housel's new book, uh, Psychology of Money, which I thought was great. And if I could go back and give that book to my 21 year old self, I'd do it in a heartbeat because it just kind of really distills down kind of the mixture of the psychology of money with, with the numbers and how people think about it. And, you know, not just not getting caught up and kind of trying to keep up with, you know, your coworkers and your friends and things like that. And just doing, doing the things that you want to do because you want to do them. Um, and, and, and not getting too bogged down in, in other things. So that's kind of where I would, would start if I was getting on this path. Awesome. So it, just wrapping up here, final question. If somebody wants to be you, right? <laughs> I mean, young thirties millionaire now has the flexibility to take a sabbatical, to take some time off, to figure out what you want. You've obviously saved a ton. You've done extremely well. 
If they're coming out at 22, 23, what would you tell them as advice or what do you wish you would have done differently? Yeah, I think accounting was, you know, is a is a good career. I I was a little nervous going into accounting that, you know, I'd kind of get bored, I'd get I'd get in a role that wasn't I wasn't really excited about. But if you get your CPA and that was the first thing I, you know, made it a goal of mine when I graduated, when you get your CPA, you're going to really be, you know, hard pressed to, you know, not be able to find work someday as long as you have your CPA. Now, it might not be in the best role, but you're going to have a lot of opportunities. And to, to change roles and get into a finance role or get into a corp dev role, um, it's just going to open up a lot of paths. So if, if someone's thinking about accounting, I think it's a, it's a great career to get started. And then you're going to also understand business so that if you do want to go start your own business, you're not going to be starting from square one. You're going to understand from the financial side what needs to go into that. Because if you are a person <laughs> kind of, you know, unlike me and you have like that passion that you know you want to go do it, I think accounting is a great place to start because not only does, do a lot of the jobs have a pretty decent income coming out of school, um, where you'll be able to save some money, but it'll also give you kind of that backbone to go try other careers or start your own business and kind of go that route. Awesome. Awesome. And and just in closing, I'm just curious because you're so young, do your friends and family or those you associate with know you're a millionaire, know of your wealth? I've told a, a, a few friends who are in similar situations that I just know make, you know, similar incomes and who have kind of progressed pretty quickly in their, you know, engineering or finance careers. Uh, so we have kind of opened up those, those lines of communication where we bounce things off each other, um, you know, kind of discuss, you know, savings vehicles, how much we're saving, things like that. Because I, a lot of this is just, I think we've had a, a amazing tailwind if you graduated in 2009 or 2010 and you were able to get into your, you know, chosen career uh, outside of school. There's been a, there has been a pretty big tailwind and as long as you've found yourself in those positions to kind of excel and bounce around and do those things, um I you know there's a decent uh, amount of folks who are are millennials in their early 30s who are making a very a very good living and I know that's not kind of what is portrayed in, in the media and I know it's a small most likely a small percentage of folks but I think it is important if you are on that path to kind of find those other people because it's you know it's not typical to you know try to save a ton of money um or pretty early on so I think it's great to have you know friends and people you can talk to about this stuff and kind of bounce ideas off of because you know reading reading about it all the time will only get you so far. I think, you know, real life application and, and talking about it with, with other folks, it, it will really get you kind of get you over that hump and really understanding the path you want to go on. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. And and thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your story. Again, everybody, that's Kevin, 32 year old CPA net worth of a million dollars did it in about 10 years. Really, really amazing. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for ser- sharing, Kevin. Really. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.